Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. This week marks our uh, fifth and final week in Philippians 3, 1 through 3. And uh, let's go ahead and begin our time this morning by reading the text together. Again, Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For several weeks now we've been discussing the concept of downgrade. The term downgrade, of course, refers to the downward slope of a hill. And in the context of our discussion, it refers to the kind of doctrinal slippage that can occur once an attitude of compromise is entertained in the church. One compromise leads to another, which leads to another, and so on and so on, until before you know it, the truth has been abandoned completely. Just like a boulder gaining momentum, the farther and farther it rolls downhill, error tends to gain steam And it goes down the hill further and further and further. And the problem, of course, is that once it gets going in this sense, it's almost impossible to stop. And so the title of our series has been Avoiding Gospel Downgrade because that's really the best way of addressing downgrade in the church. The solution to downgrade isn't to try to stand in the way of the boulder at the bottom of the hill, you know, entertain some compromise but then set some limits on it so it doesn't go too far because you do that, right? And they're going to end up scraping what's left of you off the side of the mountain. I mean, it's going to, it's going to flatten you. There is simply going to have too much momentum by the time it reaches those thresholds and it's going to blow right past you. So you don't stop downgrade, you prevent it. You push the boulder back into its place the moment it starts to teeter. That's the best way to address error. It's the best way to address it in pretty much every situation, whether the problem be theological or relational in terms of some conflict you're experiencing with a brother or sister in Christ, or even just personal. In terms of some sin issue that you're struggling with personally, it's always best to address the problem early before it gains traction. I've said that every generation is going to face downgrade, and ours is no different. And so the question that every generation must ask is, how do we keep this from happening to us? How do we prevent gospel downgrade? So far in this series, I've said that one major step is to watch your leaders. And that's because error tends to roll downhill. It's the church's leaders who have both the visibility and the credibility to propagate error in the church. And so when the church falls into error, it usually isn't due to the influence of a few laymen who stray from the truth. It comes from the top. It comes from men who, for one reason or another, have the ear of large sections of the church. Of course, we've seen this is precisely what's going on in Philippi. The Philippians are entertaining the custom, this uh, practice of circumcision. 
This may be in an, in an attempt to find some kind of common ground with their opponents, or it may just be because they're legitimately confused about whether or not Christians should be circumcised. Either way, the point is that this is the first step down the hill. This is the beginning of doctrinal decline in the church. Paul sees this taking place, and the first thing he tells them to do is to pay attention to who they're listening to. He tells them to be discerning on who they consider to be a legitimate spiritual authority. In this particular instance, it would seem that the Philippians have fallen sway to a group of overzealous Jews. I've already described the reasons for this development in the past several weeks. For these first Christians, there really was no distinction between Judaism and Christianity. To them, Christianity was just an expression of legitimate Judaism. So regardless of whether or not these particular Jews are very fond of the Philippians, the Philippians are going to see them as brothers at first. They think this discussion of circumcision is an in-house debate, and that matters because the Philippians have believed in the Jewish Messiah, meaning they have come to believe that salvation comes from the Jews. They believe that Israel has been entrusted with the oracles of God. And so again, friends or not, they still view this group of Israelites as a legitimate source of spiritual truth. Paul responds to this confusion by stating verses 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Essentially, he draws a line in the sand and he says, these guys may look like a legitimate spiritual authority, but they're not. In fact, they're not even a part of the covenant community. They've cut themselves off. They are outside of Christ and thus outside of true Israel, the Israel of God. They've nullified the meaning of their circumcision. All in all, the idea is that downgrade is coming through false teachers. It's entering the church through men who seem like a legitimate source of spiritual truth. And so this has been my admonition to you. I've said that if you want to prevent gospel downgrade, then you must watch your leaders. And then, of course, we've been walking step by step through these three proofs that Paul provides in verse 3 to discern just what to watch for in our leaders. Because again, Paul says that those authorities, spiritual authorities, who do not possess these three characteristics are outside the faith. So the focus of our discussion so far has been church leaders. I've been saying if a man, even if he is regenerate, if you start to see one of these three characteristics missing in his life, watch out because he's prone to lead you outside the faith. And again, I focused on the leaders because that's where downgrade begins. However, that said, as we close out our discussion of this passage this morning with the third proof of legitimate spiritual leadership in this passage, I would encourage you to consider whether or not these three characteristics are present in your life. After all, if you think about it, what Paul is talking about here is really a minimum threshold. In other words, it's not as if he's spelling out the qualifications for spiritual leadership in the church. You could go and find a list like that in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, and it looks nothing like what you would find here. There's actually much more that's required to serve as a legitimate source of authority in the church than what you'll find here. Instead, if you think about it, what Paul is doing is laying out the minimum threshold for fellowship in the body of Christ. After all, it's not as if the Philippians are falling sway to false teachers within the church. 
No, they're actually falling sway to the influence of unbelievers. That's Paul's point here. He's saying that these particular Jews aren't even brothers. In other words, it's not like these are rabbis that are troubling the Philippians or something like that. They're just Jews. But because of the respect that the Philippians have for Israel, that's enough. That's enough for them to see these guys as a legitimate source of spiritual authority. So Paul's plan of attack isn't to talk about leadership qualifications per se, so much as it is to talk about the evidence of a person's fellowship in the covenant community. And his point is to say that these guys are outside of the covenant community. And so they don't even pass the bare minimum threshold for fellowship, let alone the threshold required for spiritual leadership. So the Philippians need to ignore these guys completely. They have nothing positive to contribute to the conversation, or at least nothing authoritative. They're spiritually blind. As we close our series this morning, the question that I'd encourage you to ask yourself is, do these three characteristics describe me in my proclamation of the gospel? Am I a legitimate source of spiritual truth, or am I a false teacher? Perhaps I am susceptible to downgrade. And and I'm spreading error. I want you to understand what Paul's addressing here is the Philippians' desire to count not just teachers, but to count an entire people group as a legitimate source of spiritual authority. So again, Paul draws a circle around a section of that group and says these Israelites are not a trustworthy source of spiritual truth. These Israelites are. He says they must meet at least this minimum standard. And the reason why he does this, and the reason why the Philippians are thinking this way, is because the Bible designated that people group to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, we've talked about this before. You go back to Exodus 19, and God consecrates the entire nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests. Meaning the whole nation bears the responsibility to proclaim and reflect the commands and character of God to the world. Well, guess what, Christian? That's true of you, too. And in fact, it's the very purpose of your life. When God called you, He set you apart in Christ Jesus to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light to the entire world. That's the mission we've all received in Christ, to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. What this means is that when Paul says, we are the circumcision, followed by these three proofs, he's not just talking about what characterizes believing Israel. He's talking about what should characterize you as well. You are now a steward of the mysteries of God, meaning you have been tasked with communicating the commands and character of God to the world. So are you doing your job well? Are you communicating the spiritual truth that God has entrusted to you to the world? Or are there key elements missing in your proclamation of the gospel? Are you perhaps a false teacher? Not intentionally, of course. I trust that no one in here, in this room this morning, would intentionally corrupt the communication of the gospel. But even unintentionally, has downgrade occurred in you? And is it showing up in the way you're communicating Christ to others? Basically, would Paul have to warn a group like the Philippians about you? This is a question that's worth asking yourself because, as I've said so often before, this gets down to the very purpose of your existence here on the planet. 
Christ leaves the church here on earth so that we might serve as his witnesses until the day of his return. That means it's worth asking, am I accomplishing the mission he's given to me or am I a source of spiritual error? Could an unbeliever look to me as a legitimate source of spiritual authority? According to what Paul writes here in Philippians 3.3. For consistency's sake, I'm going to continue to direct your attention to the, your leaders with the third proof in this passage. I've said with the first two proofs, downgrade occurs through church leaders. So watch closely. If any of these signs are missing in the life of your leaders, because regenerate or not, if these signs are missing, then it means that your leaders are at least susceptible to error. And they'll begin to proclaim a message other than the one that's been entrusted to us by God. And that's going to continue to be my approach this morning. Watch closely to see if this third point is missing in the teaching of your leaders because if it is it means they're starting to teach you something other than the gospel the downgrade has begun however as i move through this point i would also encourage you to consider whether or not any of these proofs are missing in your own proclamation of the gospel is the gospel you proclaim orthodox or are there key elements missing so once again, in this passage, Paul presents three proofs of legitimate spiritual authority. We've already covered the first, proof, first uh, two proofs over the past couple of weeks, and that's spirit-fueled worship and Christ-centered hope. The true steward of God's revelation worships by the Spirit and glories in Christ Jesus. Let's look now at the third proof, and that's cross-based confidence. The true steward of God's revelation places no confidence in the flesh. Instead, his confidence before God is based entirely on the cross of Jesus Christ. Of course, the main issue, the main question that's at issue here is what does the Old Testament say about salvation and how it works? Because that determines who is the, the legitimate steward of God's word. Again, Paul is working with the point that salvation is from the Jews. He's working with the idea that Israel has been entrusted with the oracles of God. And so the real question that has to be answered here for the Philippians is not what is the source of spiritual truth or where do we find spiritual truth. The Philippians already know that. They understand it's found in Israel through the teachings of the law and the prophets. God has disclosed himself to the people of Israel through his scriptures, and it's their, now their responsibility to share that revelation with the world. The problem that's arising, though, is that there's this disagreement between Paul and this other group of Jews over the proper interpretation of the law. One group is saying circumcision is a requirement for the people of God. They all must be circumcised. The other is saying circumcision is not required. And both are saying this based on their interpretation of the scriptures. So the question the Philippians are wrestling with is which interpreter is authoritative? Who can be trusted in the interpretation of God's word? The way that Paul addresses the answer to this question is to ask, does this other party even understand the basics of the law and the prophets? Do they even grasp the core elements of the scripture storyline? Because if they don't understand even the basic message of the law and the prophets, then it's kind of hard to say that they understand the details, right? For a Jew to interpret the proper application of something like circumcision without understanding 
the core message of the Old Testament, that would be like someone trying to explain the proper application of the infield fly rule without first understanding the goal of a baseball game is to score more runs than your opponent. If you don't understand the basic point of baseball, then it's kind of hard to say you're going to understand how something as specific as the infield fly rule applies. Because that's the reason why the rule exists. It goes back to the point of the game. It was created to facilitate that goal. And it's the same way with the Law and the Prophets. The details are to be interpreted in light of the purpose or goal of the Old Testament. So if someone doesn't understand even the basics of what God is communicating in those scriptures, they're sure not going to understand the proper, the proper application of something as specific as circumcision. Now, Paul doesn't try to prove the Old Testament foundation for each of these three points here, but that's likely because he knows that the Philippians already understand and accept these points. The Philippians may not know everything about the Bible, but they at least know the basics. And from how Paul proceeds with these three proofs, those basics don't really seem to be in question here. He assumes that they recognize these three points as foundational aspects to Old Testament revelation, and enough so that he can simply state these three points as evidence of the true circumcision, and know that the Philippians are going to respond by saying, that, that's right, if a Jew doesn't believe that, then they're obviously already off track with respect to the proper interpretation of God's word. So while Paul doesn't explicitly state it here, each of these three points could easily, easily be substantiated by the Old Testament. Well, if there's one point that the Old Testament teaches, it's the abject sinfulness of mankind. In fact, it's the very starting point of the Bible. Genesis 1, God created man good and assigned to him the task of ruling the earth as his chosen representative. Genesis 2, God supplies man with every good thing necessary to complete this task. Genesis 3, man sins by disobeying the command of God. The curse now resides over the human race as a result of this sin, and yet God has promised to send a seed who will crush the head of the serpent and lift the effects of the curse. That's the flow of the first three chapters of the Bible. And from these chapters, God identifies the problem that must be solved in this story. And that's sin. Man is failing in his purpose. He has been separated from the blessing of God, all on account of his sin. And so if we're going to be restored back to the position of service and blessing that we once enjoyed, then sin must be answered. There are two obstacles that soon become apparent in resolving this dilemma, however, as you continue through the Old Testament. The first is that sin demands a penalty. The justice of God dictates that he cannot simply overlook sin. He cannot let the error go unanswered. Instead, he must correct the error by expressing his righteous indignation against sin, which occurs through the punishment of sin. And so God must punish mankind for his sin. He cannot let the error go uncorrected. Of course, the problem that arises then is that not only is that only man can bear the penalty for his own sin. This is a point that the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 9 and 10. He notes that under the Old Testament system, you had these sacrifices that were offered over and over again, which on the one hand indicated that the penalty of sin is death, but which on the other hand, through the repetition of these sacrifices, also indicated that they were an insufficient substitute for mankind. Speaking of these sacrifices, it says, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, and 
Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices were unable to atone for the sins of mankind because only man can bear the penalty for man's sin. And this leads us to the second obstacle that stands in the way of man's reconciliation with God. And that's the fact that all of mankind is tainted by sin and is therefore unable to remove the penalty of sin. Again, you start running through the Old Testament and it's apparent that not one single man obeys God perfectly. In fact, Psalm 14.3 just flat out says, There is none who does good, not even one. And this demonstrates that if man suffers for sin, he can only do so as a just expression of his own unrighteousness. He's unable to do so in the place of others. That means that each man and woman can only ultimately suffer for their own sins. And since the penalty for sin is eternal punishment of the wrath of God, this means on his own there actually is no hope that man can be restored back to his position of service and blessing in the presence of God. Not on his own. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that the problem of sin is even worse than this. Because the problem isn't just that man is unable to atone for his past sins. It's also that he cannot even free himself of the power of his present sins. Again, Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's just like it says in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the effect of the fall on the human heart. It means that man is born spiritually blind and unable to respond to the Word of God. And of course, this is what we see played out over and over and over again in Israel's history. God gives Israel His law at Sinai, and generation after generation of Israel fails to keep His commands. He sends them prophet after prophet. He sends them judges and kings to rule them, and generation after generation rebels against the Lord. Listen, that's not a Jewish problem. That's an Adamic problem. That's a problem that's shared by all mankind. So the Old Testament is very clear. The problem with this world is sin, and it's, a, and it's a problem that man is unable to remedy on his own. He lacks the ability to truly repent of his sin apart from the grace of God, as demonstrated right in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And even if he could somehow repent of his present sins, he still lacks the ability to atone for his past sins. And that means that in and of himself, based on his own ability, man is completely hopeless. He is unable to resolve the dilemma created by sin. So then, how are these obstacles going to be solved? What does the Old Testament tell us is the solution for the problem of sin? Again, the answer is twofold. First, God promises to send the Holy Spirit to transform the heart of His people and empower them to do the will of God. That takes care of the power of sin. We see this in passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. 
And then second, he promises to send his people a redeemer to suffer the the punishment for sin in their place. That takes care of the penalty of sin. And of course, we see this point in passages like Isaiah 53. You'll notice, by the way, that these are the exact same two points that we saw in our previous two proofs. Right? Paul says that the true circumcision worships by the Spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus. Well, that's because of what Paul says right here. The true circumcision also takes no confidence in the flesh. They understand the nature of sin. The testimony of the entire Old Testament is that man is entirely ensnared in his sins such that he's unable to free himself of his condition. And so instead he must look to the gracious provision of God who will perform the act of redemption for him. Basically, the the story of the Exodus, right? That becomes a metaphor for man's condition. Just as God came and freed the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, and without any contribution on the part of the Israelites, all they had to do was believe, right, and follow the angel of the Lord as he performed the act of redemption for them. So also must man trust in God and look to him to free him from his bondage to sin. Just like Israel's redemption from Egypt, salvation is completely and utterly free. There's nothing that man must contribute because there's nothing that he can contribute. Instead, he can only look to God and trust in Him for His redemption. Just a few weeks ago, I was watching a video on YouTube uh, from a time when uh, John MacArthur appeared on Larry King Live. The question for the night was, what happens when we die? And Larry King was asking a variety of religious authorities the answer to this question. Uh, John MacArthur, of course, was selected to represent evangelical Christianity. Um, You had a Catholic priest on there, a Muslim scholar, a New Age guru. Uh, The president of the, the American Atheist was on there. You sort of get the picture. Well, one of the individuals on this panel was a rabbi by the name of Marvin Heyer. He was there to represent the Jewish perspective on death, of course. And when Larry King asked him to answer the question, what happens when we die, he gave an answer that I thought was very insightful in light of this morning's passage. He said, when you die, God created Adam, escorted him to the Garden of Eden. He sinned, took him out of the Garden of Eden, but God never destroyed the Garden of Eden and held out the hope that people who live righteously with righteous conduct, go to the eternal world, the world of the soul. And admission to that world is based on righteous conduct and not based on any specific religion. A righteous person of any religion, and a righteous person may in fact be irreligious, will be granted eternal life because it is determined by deeds. This is, of course, the position of Orthodox Judaism. It's the position of the Philippians' opponents. They teach that a person will receive eternal life based on their performance, based on the righteousness of their deeds. And the thing that's so stunning to me about this conclusion is how out of line it is with the overall teaching of the Old Testament. Take Jeremiah 17, for example. Just a moment ago, I read Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9 It's followed by Jeremiah 17.10, which says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind 
and will give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, Jeremiah 17.10 does say that God will judge man according to what he does. But I hardly think you can take that as an encouragement to try to find salvation in your performance when the verse that comes right before that says that the heart of man is desperately sick. In fact, jumping further back into context, Jeremiah tells us where we are to look for in our redemption, and it isn't in our performance, it's in the grace of God. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8 says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I mean, do you hear that? The Bible flat out says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. It says that man is like that man is like an old dried up shrub wilting away in the heat of the desert. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. And it says, that man is like a tree planted by a stream who does not fear when the heat comes. How can you read that and then read that God searches the heart and judges every man according to his deeds just two verses later and say, I guess what the Bible is telling me is that I have to try harder to be a good person if I'm going to be saved. Friends, Jeremiah 17.10 does not say, or it does say that God will give every man uh, according to the fruit of his deeds. But it doesn't say that as an encouragement to trust in yourself. You're not supposed to read that and go, oh, is that all? Okay, I can do this. No, Jeremiah 17.10 is supposed to make you despair. It was written to help you see the futility of trusting in the flesh and make you cry out to God for salvation. For cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Friends, that is the teaching of the Old Testament. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our works condemn us. So our hope is to be found in the Lord. And that's Paul's point here in Philippians 3.3 as well. The Jew who reads the Old Testament and comes away confident in his own ability spiritually is not a reliable interpreter of Scripture. They've messed up one of the most basic principles of the Old Testament, which is man is hopelessly trapped in his sin and unable to help himself. So whoever comes away with the impression that man can in any way contribute to his salvation is not to be trusted. They may not be ill-intentioned necessarily, but at the very least, they don't understand even the basic message of the Scriptures. There are foundational components to their theology that are missing, and it's going to lead both them and their hearers into serious error. So again, this is our third proof of legitimate spiritual authority, cross-based confidence. One cannot qualify as a reliable source of spiritual truth so long as they place any confidence in the flesh. The Bible's teaching on human sinfulness means that all of our confidence spiritually must be placed in God. 
So stay away from those who do put confidence in the flesh because they will inevitably lead you into spiritual error. With that in mind, I'd like to give you four warning signs that Christians must watch for in their leaders in order to avoid downgrade in the church. For time's sake, I'm going to have to touch on some of these warnings just very briefly. There's really much, much more here to discuss than what we have time for, which I think is unfortunate, unfortunate because, again, downgrade is subtle. It goes unnoticed at the beginning. But hopefully I can at least get you pointed in the right direction uh, so you can think about this subject you know, further outside the message here. So the first warning sign is this. Number one, watch out for the leader who underestimates the sinfulness of man. Watch out for the leader who underestimates the sinfulness of man. When Paul says that the true circumcision places no confidence in the flesh, his point, of course, is that they do not place any confidence in efforts to appease God with their righteousness. We'll see what I mean by this as we continue into verse 4 next week and Paul's use of the term flesh here. Uh, suffice to say, for the moment, it has to do primarily with external appearances. And Paul's saying that the true Jew does not think that there's some kind of status that can be achieved to be accepted by God. Reason being, no level of merely human righteousness can achieve the level of righteousness that's demanded by God. However, that said, what we must understand is that the reason for that lack of confidence is not only that God's standard for righteousness is so incredibly high. In other words, it's not that the holiness of God alone is the problem here. It's also that man has fallen so very low in his sin. To put it another way, in the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to describe what he means by placing no confidence in the flesh and why he glories in Christ Jesus alone instead. Meaning these last two proofs are going to be the theme that carries throughout the rest of chapter 3. And what Paul goes on to say is that he contributes absolutely nothing to his salvation. So it's not like he's just missed the mark by a little bit. You know, he's achieved 80% of the righteousness that God requires. And then Jesus just helps top off that final 20%. No, Paul goes on to say that he's actually rejected all of the things that he used to boast in and now boasts in the righteousness of Christ alone, 100%. So there's nothing he contributes. Jesus contributes all of it. Listen, that's because of the sinfulness of man. The reason why we do not contribute anything to our salvation, like not even a little bit, is because we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. Paul gets that. He looks back on his former manner of life, of, of self-righteousness, and he realizes that even the best of his deeds were tainted by sin. There's zero worth in any of it. And so Jesus has to contribute all. Throughout church history, there have been people who've tried to argue otherwise. Perhaps the most famous of these people was a man by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk at the turn of the 4th century. He taught that while all men do in fact sin, he said man is yet born without a sin nature, meaning we do not have an inborn inclination towards sin. By his estimation, this meant that man did not necessarily need divine grace in order to be counted righteous before God, since he could, at least in theory, obey God perfectly on his own. 
The church quickly saw the error in this type of teaching, and Pelagius was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Carthage in 418 AD, and then again at the Council of Ephesus in 431. However, Pelagius isn't the only one guilty of thinking that man can contribute to his salvation. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, contends that we're counted righteous before God on the basis of our own righteousness, which is given to us through grace, uh, uh, through the grace of Christ. In other words, when they speak of grace, they think of it not in terms of a legal declaration by which God counts us righteous, even though we're not, based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Instead, they think of it as a kind of power. When they speak of grace, they're referring to the favor of God by which He helps us to be righteous so that once perfected, we can be considered righteous in His sight. So Christ contributes to our righteousness by giving us the power to be righteous, and yet at the end of the day, we're still counted as righteous before God on the basis of the righteousness we actually possess. It's not salvation by works, per se, that they teach. Meaning they're not saying that you must have so many you know, righteousness credits, so many deeds in your possession in order to purchase salvation from God. But it is a salvation by personal righteousness. And as I think we'll see as we continue through Philippians, that is most definitely not what Paul had in mind when he said that the true circumcision places no confidence in the flesh. The Reformers, of course, condemned the Roman Catholic position, arguing instead for justification that occurs by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But even among the Reformers, there soon emerged a kind of confidence in one's flesh in the form of classic Arminianism which is so named after the man who first articulated that system of thought, a Dutch reformer, by the name of Jacobus Arminius. Arminianism has sometimes been called semi-Pelagianism, and that's because while it acknowledges that man is born with an inclination towards sin, it yet argues that God bestows what is called prevenient grace, prevenient, of course, meaning antecedent or anticipatory, meaning a grace that precedes salvation, which under the Arminian view sets man in a position to either choose or reject God of his own free will. And you can see how man's role in salvation is getting narrower and narrower. Can you not? The Pelagian says that we can be justified completely by our own power, according to our own righteousness. The Roman Catholic Church says that we can be justified by our own righteousness, but through the power of Christ. The Armenian says it's neither. They say that we must be justified through Christ's righteousness, which we can only accept with the help of Christ. But even still, there's this little sliver left over where man has a role to play in his own salvation. Even if the choice is enabled by the grace of God, the point still remains he's the one who makes the final decision to be saved, and in that respect, he contributes to his own salvation. In fact, Baptists sometimes miss this point because the brand of Arminianism that's passed off in Baptist churches isn't actually classic Arminianism. Baptists, of course, tend to believe in a concept known as eternal security. Eternal security is the idea that once you make the choice to follow Jesus Christ, you can never lose your salvation. I had grown up in these kinds of churches and was therefore originally Arminian in my theology myself, but this was something that always bothered me. I thought to myself, if God can't force salvation on me, then how can I say once saved, always saved? If, I, if salvation is my choice, then I can unchoose God. And if I can unchoose God, wouldn't it be wrong of him to force me to be with him anyways? 
And if so, doesn't that actually mean that I can lose my salvation if I later turn away from the faith? And by the way, that's actually what classic Arminianism teaches. It's the notion of the conditional preservation of the saints or conditional security, not eternal security. And the result is that the Christian can be in and out of salvation from one day to the next based on whether or not they are presently pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ. It almost goes without saying how much that sort of doctrine leads the Christian to think that while God helps them in their salvation, they're effectively responsible for their own salvation. In fact, it's interesting, throughout this series on downgrade, I've been referring to the articles that appeared in Spurgeon's magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, which ultimately sparked the event in church history known as the downgrade controversy. Well, do you know what the original author of those articles, Robert Schindler, what he identified as one of the first steps to downgrade occurring in the Baptist churches of that time? It was the adoption of Arminianism. And can you see why this would be? After all, what does this doctrine do but put man in the driver's seat and make him responsible in at least some respect for his own salvation? Now, I want to be clear here. Classic Arminianism does not, and let me repeat myself clearly, it does not diminish the sinfulness of man. But it does indicate that man is at least partly responsible for his own salvation. And I'm sorry, but that seems contradictory to what Paul says here about placing no confidence in the flesh. And so I would agree with Schindler. Arminianism probably is one of the first steps a church will take on the way down the hill. In fact, if you really want to see how downgrade works, just take a look at how the Baptist faith and message has evolved on this particular point over the years. Clint pointed this out to me a couple weeks ago as we've been discussing this series together. In case you aren't aware, the Baptist faith and message is more or less the official doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention. And occasionally it's been updated throughout the years to reflect the current expression of Baptist doctrine. Well, with respect to the nature of man, the 1925 Baptist faith and message said this. It says, he, referring to all mankind, he was created in a state of holiness under the law of his maker, but through the temptation of Satan he transgressed the command of God and fell from his original holiness and righteousness, whereby his posterity inherit a nature, listen here, whereby his posterity inherit a nature corrupt and in bondage to sin and, uh, and are under condemnation and as soon as they're capable of moral action become actual transgressors. Now, do you hear that? It says that, we, that man inherits a sin nature from Adam and is in bondage to sin. And just so you know, Jacobus Arminius himself would agree with that statement. He once wrote, for instance, In this fallen state, the free will of man towards the true good is not only wounded, infirm, bent, and weakened, but it is also imprisoned, destroyed, and lost. And its powers are not only debilitated and useless unless they are assisted by grace, but it has no powers whatever except such as are excited by divine grace. Again, Arminius wrote that, not Calvin. And to say that man is, is born in, in bondage to sin and cannot believe uh, apart from the grace of God, that's actually something that Arminians and Calvinists can agree on. We just disagree on whether or not the grace that enables faith is effective unto salvation. We both agree that man cannot believe or obey apart from the grace of God because man is born in bondage to his sin. Now, in 1963, the Baptist faith and message was updated. And I want you to listen to the way it changes the expression of man's sinfulness. 
It says, In the beginning man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his Creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. So far, so good. I wouldn't disagree with any of that. It says, To the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence. And listen closely here, because this is where it gets interesting. Whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. And as soon as they're capable of moral action, become transgressors and are under condemnation. Now, do you hear the difference there? It doesn't say anymore that man is in bondage to sin. It says that man is inclined towards sin. Meaning that even before the grace of God is active in mankind, man does have the ability to obey God on his own. Because again, man isn't in bondage to sin after Adam. He's only inclined to it. Meaning it, it, he may have a natural preference to sin, but he's certainly not bound to sin. Friends, that's more Pelagian than it is Arminian. Not even Arminius could agree with a statement like that. And that's kind of a problem because Pelagianism is outright heresy. It's outside the faith according to passages like Philippians 3.3. But unfortunately, that's still the official doctrine of the Southern Baptist Convention today. Listen, if you want to see how downgrade works, that's a great example. Again, it's not as if the statement is wrong. I've said this in the past. When downgrade happens, it's not that it's error that's taught. It's that truth isn't taught. And that's what's happening here. It's not as if the statement is wrong. I would affirm that man is inclined to sin. The problem is that it isn't really right. It doesn't go far enough. And that's how downgrade starts, with vagueness. So again, watch out for those leaders who diminish the sinfulness of man. The Christian faith is built on the concept that we can contribute nothing to our salvation. And the teacher who diminishes the sinfulness of man is challenging the very foundation of that concept. So beware those kinds of teachers. They're on the downgrade, and if you're not careful, they may lead you outside the faith entirely. The second warning sign is just the flip side of this first one, so it doesn't really take a lot of explanation. And that's this, warning sign number two. Watch out for the leader who overestimates the abilities of man. Watch out for the leader who overestimates the abilities of man. Once you underestimate the sinfulness of man, you must by necessity overestimate his abilities. So watch out for those leaders who overestimate the abilities of man. You see this expressed in any number of ways, but probably the most obvious example is when the church begins to stand in judgment over the Word of God. I'm sure you've heard of several examples of this before. In fact, it's quite common in our day and age to hear people who claim to be Christians saying, well, this part of the Bible isn't actually inspired by God, and we can know this for such and such a reason. Or the Bible will give some clearly expressed command, and they'll just dismiss it out of hand saying, well, I don't think that makes sense. seems sort of backwards to me, and then ignore it. Of course, unbelievers will often do the same thing. They'll say Christianity can't be true because... And then they'll explain one thing or another about the Bible that doesn't meet their expectations. And when they do this, they're submitting the revelation of God to their own reason. The only problem is that when they do this, both the believer and the non-believer, they're just assuming that their reason functions perfectly fine or it's lone, or at least it's fairly reliable. Again, they're, they're assuming that their own thinking is infallible or at least you know, pretty reliable, and it's on the basis of this idea that they reject the Bible as fallible. 
And that's not entirely logical because one of the Bible's chief assertions is that man has been corrupted by sin. And if that assertion is true, then our reason is not a good starting place for assessing the reliability of Scripture. You're taking a flawed source of authority and measuring an infallible source of authority by those standards. Obviously, there's going to be parts where they don't match up. They're not always going to agree if one source is fallible and the other is not. The only way the two sources are going to agree 100% of the time is if they're both infallible. And so your conclusions are going to be determined by your starting point. Whatever you believe to be the more reliable standard at the outset is going to stand over the other and reject whatever claims it makes that don't match up. Now, of course, my point here this morning is not to defend the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. It's just to point out that, generally speaking, when you see someone doing this, they're overestimating man's abilities. They're assuming that man is not truly sinful, that we have some capacity to reliably discern spiritual truth on our own without the grace of God. And you need to watch out for the influence of that individual. Whether they realize it or not, they boast in the flesh. And if you're not careful, they will lead you outside the faith. You go back to the downgrade controversy. And it's probably notable that the embrace of modernist conclusions by Baptist ministers on such topics as the inerrancy of the Scripture and the doctrine of hell came not only on the heels of Arminianism, but also on the heels of the Enlightenment. The philosophical period known as the Enlightenment rejected the notion of truth through revelation and instead embraced the power of human reason. Thus, as ministers follow the world in embracing this concept, it's no wonder that some started to doubt the Bible or even key doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the notion of eternal judgment. Because that's the natural conclusion of an overestimation of man's abilities. Once you believe that man is not truly fallen, then concepts like hell are unreasonable and you reject them. Again, beware these kinds of teachers. They boast in the flesh. And if they take their assumptions about man to their logical conclusion, they will reject the gospel. Warning sign number three. And I really hate to be so brief at this point because I think this was one where this idea gets really interesting and really relevant. Warning sign number three. Watch out for the leader who relies on the wisdom of man to build the church rather than on the power of God. Let me say that again. Watch out for the leader who relies on the wisdom of man to build the church rather than on the power of God. What I mean by this point is this. If a man understands the sinfulness of man rightly and of man's need for God's grace to be saved, then he won't just come away with the conclusion that he cannot save himself apart from God's grace. He'll also come away with the conclusion that he cannot save others apart from God's grace. You see this principle played out beautifully by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. In those chapters, Paul explains that the gospel cannot be accepted by the natural man because it's discerned spiritually, meaning God must disclose the truth of the gospel to the sinner in order for them to understand it. He must do this through the Spirit. And do you know how this affected Paul's approach to ministry? I love this. He says, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear 
and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Again, I love this. Paul says he knew that a person could not believe apart from the power of the Spirit. And so when he presented the gospel, he didn't feel the need to dress it up in any way. He didn't think that people were going to come to faith through the power of his presentation. If anything, Paul was afraid that if he dressed it up too much, then someone might become a Christian for the wrong reasons. They'll, they'll come because they think Christianity is intellectually respectable or something like that. Basically, they'll come for the social status and not on the basis of the hope that's been established in Christ alone. And Paul didn't want that. In fact, in chapter 3, he goes on to explain that he was very careful in his ministry to make sure that the foundation that he built on was Christ alone. It was the cross. It was the gospel. And this meant that Paul actually avoided gimmicks. He stayed away from anything that would appeal to the listener other than the cross. He wanted to make sure that if a person came to faith, it was only because of the cross. And so there was nothing else appealing about his presentation in that sense. He stripped it down. Now, not to sound like a crotchety old man. I know my back's hurting today. I'm acting like an old man. But not to sound like a crotchety old man. But it kind of makes you wonder what Paul would think of the church coffee bar. Or the high-octane youth program. Perhaps even more to the point, it makes you wonder what Paul would think of the altar call filled with emotional appeals to come to Christ and the church organ playing dramatically in the background. It almost makes you wonder what Paul would think of the multi-site megachurch. I mean, do we think that the church is built on the back of excellent communicators? Paul sure didn't, think, uh, sure didn't seem to think so. I mean, do we think that the, the church, you know, that someone's not going to come to Christ without an emotionally charged atmosphere? Again, Paul didn't think so. Do we really think that we'll reach more young people if we make church fun or exciting? Do we think that's why young people aren't coming to Christ because our games aren't good enough? Now, don't get me wrong. I know I'm attacking some straw men here. <laughs> and I'm not saying that emotions are bad. Or that we should make the church as uncomfortable and uninviting as possible as if we somehow demonstrate our righteousness by how miserable we are. Okay, That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to raise the question, why? Why do churches adopt these practices? Is it really because we're trying to be faithful to remove any unnecessary obstacle to the cross? Or is it because we think that growing the church is something we do? that it's just a matter of coming up with the right kind of technique. And I'm asking that question because if a leader thinks that they are in some way responsible for the growth of the church, watch out. That man boasts in the flesh. He thinks that man can in some way contribute to salvation. And in that sense, he's susceptible to downgrade. Subtle errors will enter into the church through him. Warning sign number four, and I'm just going to note this one very, very briefly for time's sake. Warning sign number four, watch out for the leader who bases your assurance of salvation on your works. Watch out for the leader who bases your assurance on your works. I mean, this point almost goes without saying, right? If someone is in any way causing you to base the assurance of your salvation on your obedience then whether they mean to or not, they're teaching you to boast in the flesh. 
And again, that's downgrade. We're departing from the pure teaching of the gospel at this point. Now, there are some very subtle ways that a person can teach you to do that. If we had time, I'd try to spell out some of those ways for you here this morning, but unfortunately we don't. Instead, we're just going to have to save that portion of our discussion for home fellowship group. Just be watchful and understand that if someone is encouraging you to base your assurance on your obedience, the obedience that you perform, then well-intended or not, it may be teaching you to put your confidence in your flesh. And that's error. You need to reject that kind of teaching. And with that, we're out of time. And so I hate to end our series so abruptly, but we're just going to have to leave it at that. Hopefully these past few weeks have given you a better understanding of how downgrade works in the church and what signs to watch out for uh, so you can help your brothers and sisters steer clear of it. Let's close out this series by praying one last time that God would help us to avoid the threat of downgrade in our body. Let's pray this so that Christ will be glorified in us. Let's pray.